0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The conservative review with Daniel Horowitz.
1: And welcome back, fellow American Patriots and Minutemen, to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today for a brand new month, beginning of September, the final third of the year. Will this be the final lap where we regain our freedom, or is this going to be? the final part of the year where we actually not only lose our freedom, but lose our health, our ability to live. You know, we live in an era where everything is a right. You have a right to extended unemployment. You have a right to welfare. Heck, you have a right to taxpayer-funded sex change operations in prison and through Medicaid. These are real federal court cases, by the way, decisions that have been made. But suddenly, suddenly when you have a patient that is desperately trapped into this vicious cycle of this viral enhancement that we're going to continue talking about on the one hand, and so they're faced getting this virus, and then they get it, and they have nowhere to turn. For the first time in American history, you know, you can get a staph infection, Lyme disease, cancer, pneumonia, bronchitis, whatever. There's treatment. Here, we're told there's no treatment. Outpatient, zero. And inpatient, very few things that really don't work questionably whether they harm and then you could beg them even at the late stages where it's the bottom of the ninth inning nothing to do and they still will deny fda approved drugs that are safer than what they're using and have at least a better possibility of helping they will go to court to and sign an affidavit denying life-saving treatment when they have nothing else to offer it is senseless as it is dark Now, we're going to have a very special guest on today who is literally, I would say, at the front lines, but he is the front line in fighting this. We've had a lot of doctors on. Well, today we're going to have a lawyer on. Uh, First, today's interview is sponsored by Alliance Defending Freedom for over 27 years. ADF has been standing up for religious liberty, sanctity of life, freedom of speech, marriage, parental rights, and the nation's highest courts. Um, As you could well tell, there are very few Lawyers on our side that have the resources, the bandwidth, the time, the expertise to deal with this. Uh, go to adflegal.org/cr to pick up your copy of ADF's ebook titled "Generational Wins," absolutely free. Discover why their fight is so important to us now more than ever. And please donate uh, generously. It's adflegal.org/cr. Adflegal.org/cr. Now, some of you might have seen. Over the last number of months, these cases where a judge rules that a given hospital, whether it's in New York, there's been cases in Illinois, uh, Utah, I think that they have to administer ivermectin at the request of, of a doctor who wants to prescribe it. And, you know, over much opposition, sometimes they even appeal these cases, it's, it's unbelievable what these hospitals are doing. The man behind almost every one of them, perhaps all of them, is Ralph Larigo. He's been practicing law in Western New York since 1974. Um, he's also been the Erie County Conservative Party chairman for many, many years. I wish we had that in some of the red states, a uh, conservative party. Um, so certainly a lot of insight into both the law and politics. He has his own practice there, and he is single-handedly Fighting for patients, I'm getting all these brokenhearted emails from people. So hopefully we learn a little bit more today. Uh, Mr. Larigo, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Uh, thank you for having me.
1: Well, I really commend your work. It is truly, um, I know it's emotionally draining for me, the stories I'm hearing. Could you start with some of the stories you're getting from families of patients and how you as someone who dealt with more you know, real estate, financial issues, all of divorce, marriage, all sorts of issues that any lawyer does, how in the world did you get into COVID treatment and ivermectin and hospital cases?
0: So this all starts uh, January 7th of this year when a good client of mine, his mother-in-law, 80 years old, is rushed to a local hospital with COVID, placed on a ventilator in ICU, and given a 20% chance of living. The son comes up from Georgia. He's done all the research. He convinces the ICU doctor to give her ivermectin. And after one dose of ivermectin, she got that dose like the second day that she was on the ventilator. After one dose of ivermectin, within 48 hours, she was off the ventilator, out of ICU, onto the COVID floor. It had been that successful. She starts to decline on the COVID floor, and the COVID floor doctors refuse to continue the ivermectin. So they contact me. They come in, like, at 4:30 on a Thursday. We decide we're going to sue the hospital. Um, one of the lawyers who works for me, John Maneer, stays till 11:30 at night preparing all the litigation papers. They come in at 8:30 the next morning, sign the papers. We electronically file, and by noon that day, I had a court order obligating the hospital to continue the treatment of ivermectin. When we serve that on the hospital. The hospital attorneys, uh, high-powered attorneys in this area, started fighting back and pushed back. The judge decided we'd have a conference at 5 o'clock that same day. We had a conference where we argued back and forth. I was still successful. The lady received the ivermectin. Six days later, that lady left that hospital. She spent a month in rehab, but that 80-year-old woman is home today doing everything she normally would do. That got so much publicity that we started getting a number of calls, and uh, we duplicated that a second time in a neighboring county in Rochester General Hospital, where they absolutely refused the same kind of situation. The woman had been on the ventilator for a couple of weeks at that point, so she was in worse shape. But again, I won the court order, and she got the ivermectin. The hospital actually claimed after she got it that they lost the ivermectin. I had to go back to court to get a second court order, which I got. But that lady's home today. We, on Good Friday last year, um, another case in another neighboring county where on Good Friday at 6 o'clock at night, the judge, I was able to contact the judge. The other lawyer was on the phone. The judge ordered the ivermectin. That 81-year-old 80 year man today is home. Since then, I have had a very strong um, relationship with the Frontline COVID Alliance, the uh, people, Dr. Pierre Corey's group. I talked to Pierre Corey uh, or at least emailed that group almost daily. He is a warrior in this field. Yeah. He is by far the most knowledgeable guy with regard to ivermectin. And he's a guy who's dedicated the last year and a half to this fight.
1: So, Absolutely, uh, it's it's funny, yeah. So you you he, know, I'm I'm a I'm a staunch conservative like you are, but he actually I found out later is a liberal, and he is a his congressional testimony inspired me more than any congressional testimony I've watched in fifteen years.
0: We he and I haven't spoken about politics. I I kind of know that they're not as you know where I am in terms of it, but this is about. <laughs> saving people's lives and he is passionate. He's dedicated. Um, and like I say, he's a great resource to me, but then I also was contacted by Dr. Simone gold out of California. She has another group in California. She actually came from California to Buffalo to see me. She was going to uh, a lecture, but she came here and spent an hour here and videotaped our, our conversation. And I have her group as a resource also. And then, kind of amazing to me, I was asked, I was invited to a group called the International COVID Summit. It originates out of Rome, Italy. When I have a meeting with them on my computer, there are 23 doctors from around the world who advocate ivermectin, most of whom will tell you they have not lost one patient because they use ivermectin from day one. They use these alternative remedies from the beginning. And most of them will tell you uh, their advocacy and the fact that they've not lost one patient.
1: So one of the things I've been trying to figure out is there's all sorts of excuses, memes, stuff made up. But one thing I can't wrap my arms around when you go head to head with the hospital lawyers so traditionally, we've always allowed even non-FDA-approved the drugs for many people that are really without options. They're going to die as it stands now. There's no other option. Yet, ivermectin is not only FDA-approved, but it is something that has one of the most unique profiles in the history of all drugs, that it was used in mass, billions of doses, and was so safe, um, better record than, than Tylenol. What possesses a hospital to posit an argument that they would rather the person die? It's not like they're offering anything else than use ivermectin.
0: Well, what I've come to decide is it's all about money. It's all about big pharma. The legal situation is that you cannot put out a vaccine on an immediate uh, emergency basis if there's a reasonable alternative. Excuse me. And Big Pharma does not want ivermectin to be that reasonable alternative. If you look at the recent article that was put out, they have a picture of a person next to a horse. And it actually, if you read it carefully, you'll see it is the FDA veterinary division that is putting (laughs) this out. So it's been slanted so many ways. Um, Look, people are desperate. We certainly don't advocate that you go to tractor supply and get your ivermectin from them. We don't advocate that, but they want to slant it in that direction. And they're pushing yes. people because they're so prohibitive about utilizing ivermectin to save lives. I mean, I have in front of me the 63 trials. There are at least 63 trials that have been done. Over 600 scientists have been involved in those trials. Over 26,000 patients have been involved in those trials. And what you see, is 86% improvement in the prophylactic use, 86% in a prophylactic use, but you see a 58% improvement in mortality. So this is a drug that should be used to prevent COVID at the beginning stages of COVID, and it has a 58% efficacy, even in mortality. Broward County, Florida, their hospital system did a test and they did a test of severe COVID patients. And while 30% passed away, even with ivermectin, over 80% passed away without it. That gives you a 50% better probability of success using ivermectin. And like you said, there is no real downside to ivermectin. I have a study that was done by a toxicologist who reviewed 388 studies on the the effects of ivermectin and concludes that ivermectin will not will not hurt you if you take it uh for covid ivermectin like you say is one of the safest drugs we've had out of 3.7 billion doses over 35 years there's less than 100 deaths this is a drug as you said safer than aspirin and there is no real downside except money Ivermectin's patent ran out in 1996. You can buy the pills for less than a buck a pill. They want to give you remdesivir, which is still put out on an emergency basis, and it costs over $3,000 a shot. So the typical protocol is five, 10, or 15 doses of remdesivir, depending on how greedy the hospital is, and steroids. <laughs> That's the typical protocol. When they're done with that, they're out of bullets, and all they're doing is kind of monitoring day to day, and they still refuse and adamantly refuse to provide the information.
1: Mm. Now, I wanted to to piggyback off your last point because I've been making this point for months. And the doctors that you know you cited, and several of those are in the circles I travel with—great, um, you know, great patriots, Dr. Pierre Corey. Um, you look at Remdesivir. So, to me, I'm thinking as. You know, someone like with a legal mind would say, "Wait a minute." So they're gonna say, "Yeah, I don't like ivermectin. Maybe in this circumstance, it's not good. I don't know. Not enough sample size. Yada yada, whatever." But when you juxtapose, has this come up in legal arguments? That when you when you go back and forth with the judge, have they taken notice that all right, man, you guys are real sticklers. You guys want mountains of studies with three million people in the double blinded clinical trials. Okay, well, you go to remdesivir. And so this is not enough to make ivermectin even a right-to-try last-ditch optional. Yet, with negative efficacy, okay, the WHO recommends against it. University of Iowa published in JAMA says that it elongates the time. uh, It doesn't work, and the question of why it might take longer, there's – some data now that it causes renal issues. These are questions that is not just approved, but is the standard of care at 3000 a pop. Has this juxtaposition come up in the legal arguments?
0: I argue it all the time because the argument the hospital is going to come up and what we've done. And I've been through many of these now with doctors on the stand. So in Mississippi, for example, I had a doctor on the stand. And I ask them the obvious question, so why won't you provide the ivermectin? Well, it's not FDA approved. Well, doctor, have you read any of the 63 studies that I cite in my papers that show the efficacy of ivermectin, have you read any of those? No. Can you point to a study that shows that ivermectin will in fact hurt the patient? No. So tell me the prognosis of this patient. Well, the patient's in terrible shape, We've done everything we could. Um, it's, he's got less than 20% chance. So you've got a patient with less than 20% chance of survival. You've done your full protocol, and it hasn't worked. You're only monitoring the patient at this point in time, and you won't give ivermectin. And the robot answer is it's not FDA approved. It's been so bad. I've had doctors actually say to my client, you should consider removing life support. And the client says, no, I want to try ivermectin. Uh, I don't know. That could have negative effects. <laughs>
1: That's <laughs> oh the gosh. logic
0: you want to tell me?
1: That's what they'll say. I've never Next. seen it. I've never seen anything And, and to just buttress your point, it's not just about ivermectin. And maybe there's something funny about ivermectin. I'm hearing from the doctors. I'm wondering what you're hearing. This is a broad problem. It's not a matter of any drug. It's a matter of they systematically go through anything that might work and ban it. So I've had doctors tell me they can't use androgen blockers, which are looking very, very promising, especially if you're down and out. Um, You know, the androgen blockers, proxalumidide, or or equivalent things that we have in America. Um, And then I've had doctors tell me in the ICU that they've had 5,000 IUs of vitamin D they order, which is nothing for someone that's sick. They should be getting 50,000. And they'll have it reduced to 1,000. I mean, they'll literally play a cat and mouse game. And then another case I found in Florida where they said you could use ivermectin, but it's only 0.2 milligrams and only for two days, which is very critical because with, with the Delta, with this strain, you really need to hit it longer. Are you finding that as well?
0: Look, these doctors believe and they testify that only they, only they know what's best for you. There's no other opinion that matters. There's, you know, there's certainly lawyers don't matter when I argue the case. They want to argue that the infectious disease doctor of that particular hospital or the administrative doctor of that particular hospital is the only one that knows. And when I say to a court, to a judge, look, judge, I understand there's a controversy, but I have 63 studies. So recently, that Ohio case that you talked about, so Dr. Wagshaw, who is one of the founding members of the Frontline COVID Alliance, was the doctor who prescribed the medication. So he's at um, a hospital, uh, what hospital is he at now? Kettering. So he's at Kettering in Ohio, a very prominent hospital. So the hospital that this patient's at, what they argue with the court is, you should move the patient. If you're not happy with what we do, you should move the patient from our hospital to Kettering. (laughs) Now, this is a patient who's on a ventilator who they know they don't even want to move these patients downstairs for treatments because they're on the ventilator and yet they'll argue, okay, move the patient 20 miles away to a hospital. So here's their logic. It's, it's all wrong. The FDA doesn't approve it. The world health doesn't approve it. The society of infectious disease doesn't approve it. So we don't do it. Um, It's terrible. It shouldn't be used, but okay. Take them to Kettering 20 miles away where they do use it. Where's the logic in that, Judge? Where's the logic in that that they won't open their minds to an alternative?
1: And and again, the irony of all ironies is, while it is approved for um, COVID, remdesivir is fun fact, it is not FDA approved; it's EUA. Whereas ivermectin is an FDA approved drug. That's, that's the right. that's the irony of that. Um, but what did, I know, we're running out of time here. I uh, just wanted to get to some of the legal arguments. Could you talk a little bit broadly about just some of the, you know, case law, the precedents, and does the recently passed federal bill on right to try in twenty eighteen tie into this at all, or does it is it not covered under that?
0: It, it's really not because the uh, the, uh, the the right to try act that Trump passed it really has to do with experimental drugs and cancer. It needs to be broadened into this Mm. situation. But what I, I want to get across to your audience is a couple of very important things. In order for me to bring a lawsuit, I need three things. I need three things. The first thing I need is standing. In order to bring a lawsuit in court, you have to have standing. And since the person is typically on a ventilator, they can't be the one bringing the lawsuit. So somebody has to bring it on their behalf. That typically means I need a power of attorney. And a lot of people, especially in their 50s and below and even in their 60s, they do not have powers of attorney. Therefore, mm. we have to go do a guardianship proceedings, which costs more time and more money. We have to do a guardianship proceedings before we can bring the lawsuit. So a power of attorney, which is a very simple legal document, needs I need that. Um, so the power of attorney gives me standard. The second thing I need in any one of these lawsuits is a prescription. A judge can't order medication, but a judge certainly can decide between a legitimate prescription and the hospital's denial. So you need to lean on your family doctor. You need to arm them with enough information. You need to hope that they're willing to open their minds so that we can get a local doctor. It doesn't matter to me if he has privileges at the hospital or not, but I need a prescription. If you can't get it from your local doctor, there's certainly the telemed process. I prefer, you know, obviously the local person, but that's the fallback. The third thing I need when I'm out of New York is I need a local attorney. Now, all this local attorney has to do is take my New York papers and change the heading to whatever state I happen to be in, file them electronically so that I can argue these cases from my conference room, which I have now for seven months, and do a motion called pro hoc Vici to allow me to argue in a state that I'm not otherwise licensed. Again, I'm 47 year attorney in good standing. No one has ever denied me the pro hoc Vici. So I need those three things. I need standing for a power of attorney. I need a prescription. It can't be done without a prescription. And I need the help of some local lawyer. Uh, The local lawyer generally is the easiest of the three to come up with. So those are important things. In terms of the right to try, we've done the research, and we make that argument uh, from a constitutional issue. But um, in the, the right to try is really or geared toward uh, cancer with experimental drugs. That's not what we have here. We have an, a fully FDA-approved drug that's won the Nobel Prize in 2015. Um, yeah, so for efficacy and safety.
1: Now, in ter- terms of that legal argument, so again, I'm I'm looking at you know there's a bunch of cases recently forcing Catholic hospitals. I know he, where I am in Maryland, St. Joe's. They're on the hook for doing um, you know what they call sex change operations and things like that. So you have a right to an affirmative operation, uh, you know, something that complex and that uh, dangerous, and and judges have ruled that Medicaid has to cover. There was a Wisconsin federal case. Um, Is there any any of those cases that you could lean on or just what what are some of the central legal arguments? So the
0: argument is one in equity. So the argument is that there's immediate and irreparable harm if the judge doesn't uh, give us what we're asking for. So we bring what's called a declaratory judgment action against the hospital. So that's the action. It's a declaratory judgment to declare that the hospital should provide the ivermectin in this particular case. Then we bring an order to show cause on an immediate basis. And in order to do that, you have to show the immediacy. You have to show um, the likelihood of success. You have to show that there's no other uh, alternatives available to you. So those are the kinds of things we look at when bring these lawsuits. But if you want to dig deeper into what the U.S. Supreme Court has held, we have two lines of cases. We have the Roe versus Wade case. And while I'm not a proponent of those cases, what you see in the sure. Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court ruled that uh, women do have the right to control their body. They do have the right to make these decisions. So the Supreme Court cases go in favor of the individual's right. But then you have a line of marijuana cases, so medical marijuana. So the medical marijuana mm-hmm. cases, when they went to the U.S. Supreme Court, The Supreme Court held differently that government does have the right to put restrictions on the use of an individual. So those two sets of cases have not been put together. Ivermectin is, in fact, given the pandemic and given the situation, Ivermectin would be the great case to go in there and show that we should and do have a constitutional right of informed consent. That's what every one of us should have a constitutional right of informed consent. And that's what, if someone was taking this case to the U.S. Supreme Court, that's what I would hope would be the decision. I'm so involved in the individual patient. This is what we we do here at my office day to day. I have six lawyers who work for me. We've now, I've added two additional lawyers to work full-time, so I have four lawyers working full-time on preparing these litigation papers i am intake and i'm the one who argues these cases so that is keeping us really busy (laughs) um but we you know today i received two calls from people who we've been successful with and whose loved one is coming home because of our successes so i had two calls today but believe me there are days when we lose somebody because we couldn't get into court soon enough and those are bad days
1: yes Yes, and I was thinking about that because time is of the essence with this thing. Um, This is so vital. Would you be so gracious to stay for another five minutes? Sure. Two two things I want to broach with you. So number one, I noticed yesterday, at least from my observation – um, you, you know, the Ohio case got garnered a lot of headlines. You won that case. But in Illinois, it looks like you lost a case. And I've never seen a loss yet in court. Is that a harbinger that the FDA's shenanigans and demagoguery with the horse stuff is having an effect on judges?
0: Yes. So what you see, that's exactly the argument they made. They put forth – and, you know, they put it forth. I just don't get it because they, the picture is the, a person with a horse. And yet they put that in their papers and they make the argument that, look, recently the FDA doubled down against ivermectin and they want to make all those same arguments. Now, in that recent loss, the judge vacillated four different times. So the judge originally granted our order um, to show cause that the person should get the ivermectin. Then the hospital came in and asked to set aside that order and the judge dissolved his original order but set the hearing up for Monday and then went back and forth in the hearing on Monday and, you know, finally made, in my opinion, obviously, the wrong decision. But, you know, you're in front of a judge. It's a single individual who has his own, you know, bias. He has his own theory of things, and we're presenting evidence Um, as to what the situation should be, most judges, in fact, the great majority of judges I've been in front of, the equity argument certainly is the argument that wins. They're done with their protocol. They have no active protocol to cure this individual anymore. Why not try ivermectin when there is efficacy in these trials? And most every judge that I've been in front of has gone in that direction.
1: Now, I'm assuming the answer is no, but I want to make sure we, we touch all bases here. Um, so part of the problem is time is of the essence. I'm finding particularly with this variant, uh, people deteriorate really rapidly. And, you know, it's it's so hard to, to litigate one. It's like trying to, you know, win back Afghanistan block by block. Is there any mechanism that you hope a case could tri- trigger some sort of categorical ruling that could be applied you know, nationwide or at least across a region or something like that?
0: No, the problem is this. When you get an interim order on an order to show cause, that is not law of the case. So mm. what they have on their side is we do not have precedent. It is not law of the case. It's an interim order. And the case becomes moot once the person leaves the hospital and once we've been successful with that person. And believe me, Hospitals are aware of this. They take the position that they want the case dismissed and so that there is no precedent. Wow. Now, only in Illinois, where the hospital was so outrageous, <laughs> I suppose, is a good word to use. on, a, on your It's radio hard to show.
1: find the right word. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I have much stronger words for it. So in that case, they actually appealed the judgment. And, you know, even though the case was moved, they actually appealed the judgment and they lost. And so I do have an appellate division case. Um, And I've used I use that. But the argument is, well, the case was moot. The rest of what the uh, 14 pages that the appellate division said was what we call dicta. It's not law of the case. The law of that appellate division ruling is that that case was moot, even though the hospital argued that the judge shouldn't and didn't have the authority to make the decision in the first place. Certainly, um, the appellate division just pushed that aside. In dicta, they said yes, he did have that authority.
1: Wow. So, so to sum it up, this is almost antithetical to like class action suits. This is so individualized, so ephemeral, temporary. Literally, just to get that person at that moment the treatment. Um, And even then, they're fighting it tooth and nail, of course. Uh, Final question before I let you go. I think the most important thing to literally thousands of people listening are in the same predicament. As this wave grows, Um, outpatient. So, you know, every day you wait, the potential for even the best stuff decreases. Um, It's true of ivermectin. It's true of hydroxy. It's true even of the monoclonal antibodies. You got to hit early, hit, hit hard is there anything in your view, now you can't take care of the whole country as one law practice, but if you had to give advice, now the problem that started in the hospitals is now outpatient too. So even if you could find a doctor who will prescribe, pharmacists are refusing to fill the prescriptions. Do you have any insight on any possible action one could take on that?
0: Well, first of all, what I say is, you, you you're exactly right. You need to move quickly as soon as you get COVID. In fact, if you're in any kind of risk group, you should order the ivermectin in advance. You can order it from lots of different places in advance. Ne- you need to know what dosage you would take. And so those are all on the Frontline COVID Alliance website. So it's, it's 0.2 milligrams per kilogram if you're using it in advance of COVID and it's 0.4 to 0.6 if you have COVID and 0.6 if you're in serious condition. So that's what you should have it there ready. You should, if you can avoid going to the hospital and taking the ivermectin, I mean, that's a treat. that's something you should seriously consider. I've had people take their loved one home from the hospital who hasn't been on a ventilator yet, get the oxygen set up at the hospital, have a nurse you know, there to take care of this, in this case, an 82 year old mother, and give the ivermectin uh, along the way. There are different types of alternatives. But if you're stuck in that situation where your loved one is in the hospital and either on event or going to be on event, then what I do is people can contact me and I certainly give them as much information as I can over the phone. I send them a number of emails to show them the efficacy of ivermectin, to give them the tools to fight with the hospitals, to give them a general release that they can offer the hospital if, in fact, the hospital would prescribe the medication, the ivermectin. And while the statistics aren't great, three times that's been successful, three times out of 60, but three times the hospitals have acquiesced to the fight of an advocate for their loved one.
1: So, wow, that is very important. And, and again, so like outpatient, you don't see any action we can do with the pharmacist, or does that depend on state laws governing pharmacists it does. practicing it does. medicine?
0: Pierre Corey contacted me a couple of weeks ago, and he was outraged that he had prescribed um, ivermectin and um, a pharmacy, a national chain pharmacy, refused to fill the prescription. And so we did the research. And in certain states, pharmacies have discretion um, and can refuse even a legitimate, um, prescription. Mm. So again, you need to be proactive. You need to know in advance In, in local pharmacies generally will give it, but you need to, there's nothing wrong with if you're in any kind of risk category, there's nothing wrong with, uh, trying to get that prescription early, trying to, uh, if you can't get it from a local doctor, trying to get the prescription from a telemed to, so that you have it on hand as a prophylactic use. And then if, in fact, you uh, contract COVID to start using it under some medical supervision or at least the, under the, yeah. uh, the guidelines that the Frontline COVID Alliance has put out there and continually upgrades, that's what you should do to be proactive. And like I say, God forbid you find yourself in the other situation where your loved one's in a hospital, you need to be an advocate there all the more. And certainly I'm willing to help.
1: Well, thanks for your generous time. This is very informative. Is there anywhere people could go to help out? Are you accepting donations?
0: Well, look, uh, if if people should... Give donations to the Frontline COVID Alliance. That's where I would ask people if they're Mm. generous enough to give donations to these people that need help. You know, Corey has spent a year and a half donating his time, giving his time, being, you know, continuous involvement in this, offering to help. in every one of my cases, all I have to do is call or email him, and they're responsive. Same thing with Dr. Wagshaw. I mean, these people are saints, So if there's if people are willing to donate, that's where they should donate. If they need legal help, then they can go to my website. It's very simple. It's rlarigo at larigo dot com. So they can go to my website, ask me for help. Um, while I'm on that phone trying to answer those calls almost every minute of the day, I will continue to try to do that seven days a week.
1: Wow. That, that is amazing. And it's funny you mentioned Pierre Corey. Uh, Time magazine just did a hit on him. A guy that literally sacrificed his entire career just to save lives. I, I know personally the stuff he's done in the background, despite how busy he is, and he's treated like garbage. And yet the doctors that are literally committing genocide are the heroes. What a, what a world we live in. Um, I guess you never thought that four decades into your career, you'd be dealing with a medical issue like this. But God bless you for putting in that time and effort. And I'd love to, you know, for this audience to help in any way. And, uh, you know, keep, please keep us posted on the latest developments. And, and again, God bless you and your work.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for putting take, this
1: information out. Absolutely. Take care. Wow, folks, that was absolutely spectacular! Again, Ralph Larigo, Lorigo, L O R I G O, Lorigo. Um, look at that! I I thought he, I figured he had like a GoFundMe or something, you know, because it's not like he has uh, a million people to deal with this, which you would need when the entire country is being blocked off of treatment. Um, it's uh, what did he say? Four of his staff he has working on this. And he declined to take donations. I mean, this is what I've seen from the beginning of this. The people that actually care the most about saving lives and sacrifice their career. This is a guy, I, I, I've never heard of him before. Okay? I found him. He's the one with his name is on all these cases. And I just look around at his bio and he's been practicing for like 40-something years. I mean, he's at the end of his career. He's obviously done very well for himself on an array of, you know, the traditional kind of issues that lawyers do. He totally didn't need to step into this. I can guarantee you it is not a good moneymaker like all these cases are. And he's the lawyer version of these doctors, the frontline doctors, and they are being trashed in the media for saving lives. The media has the power to make utter crap gold and gold crap. It is unbelievable what is going on. It is unbelievable what is going on. I don't know what to do. I'm going to try to help as much as I can. Um, I'm hearing Benzer, Benzer Pharmacy, they have in Florida, maybe some other states. I think B E N Z E R, Benzer um, is one. You got to find in your area the non cartel pharmacies. So you got to find a doctor and you got to find a pharmacist. Um, and I would say is, if you haven't gotten COVID, if your family has not gotten it yet, and this applies if you had the vaccine or you didn't, if you haven't gotten it yet, try to get a hold of prophylaxis. Um, use your judgment. Talk to whoever you want to, whether you want to prophylax or just wait until the first moment you feel you get it. Um, but... But it has gotten that bad. It has gotten that bad. You know, it's funny. All of my colleagues are focused on Afghanistan. Okay, everything's Afghanistan. It's all, could you imagine the slaughter that's happening in Afghanistan? Could you imagine the slaughter that is happening right here? Folks, we have, do you do you know that we are at right close to approaching the highest peak of hospitalizations of the winter months, and it's September 1st. Israel has more hospitalizations and cases than ever and the most cases per capita in the world. Ask yourself the question, how could it just be the unvaccinated's fault if it's 10 times worse than it's ever been and you already have most adults vaccinated wherever you go. And more built-up natural immunity, too. And the only answer we could come up with is that if you look and, we, you know, listen to yesterday's show. I'm not going to rehash it in more detail, but Merrick's disease, that failed chicken vaccine, it is well known that a leaky vaccine creates reverse evolutionary um Enhancement. It's this Pfizer viral enhancement. An enhancement of viral load. It allows people to, to build up a bigger viral load before they get sick. And then those people, and and I think it's gonna happen to every shot, but it's particularly the Pfizer one. And that's what the Israeli data seems to be clear with. Our own data, the CDC Mayo Clinic, they say Moderna is leaking slower. I mean, that that this is not me. I mean, folks, ask yourself this question. Let's say vaccine is everything, okay? But wouldn't you want to know which one is the best? You know, we've had a lot of months of, of data, right? Wouldn't we want to know why the hell is it that Pfizer is the lead one with approval? They're the lead one with a booster. They're the lead one with the younger people getting EUA approval and then adults getting full, full approval. Why is it the one that from their own data, incontrovertibly, it's not even close, is the leakiest and the most failed of the three? And if you include AstraZeneca, which is not available in the U.S., I'd throw that in too. Why? And I think that has the same answer to the question of why you would want to deny someone life-saving treatment from drugs that are more established and safer than what you're pushing. And I think we all know the reason it's the perfect way to blast the heck out of the unvaccinated people that until now were younger and not at risk. And now everyone's at risk because of the 250 times greater viral load that this has created. And then that gives them the perfect narrative. They get to kill our people off and then say, ha ha ha, look at you dance on their grave. You didn't get the vaccine when really it's, as Vanden Bosch warned from day one, the viral enhancement you're going to create. So again, it could be the Delta, but Delta wasn't a problem initially. The UK's wave showed Mueller's ratchet was holding. It got a little bit more transmissible, but less virulent, which is how microevolution works. Why are we experiencing something very, very different? I'm telling you, the most dangerous person to be around is a person who had the Pfizer shot without prior infection in an area where it's circulating because they'll likely get it. And if they get it, their capacity to spread it to you is insane. And you're going to get killed even if you're 25 years old from that person. So we're now screwed. They created a monster that should never have happened. It was a fatal flaw to do mass vaccination with a leaky narrow spectrum vaccine in the middle of a pandemic. And not just at the very minimum just apply it to the older people. And now you know what it is. Now everyone's vulnerable. Oh my, we got to get early treatment. Oh, whoops. Now we're going to block it all out. We're going to block it all out. I feel bad. I can only help so many people and it, it's getting bad. They're cutting off supply. They're cutting it off the border. I, I'm hoping we can get compounding pharmacies just to compound it here, which I think they can, and I think some maybe are, because they're going to choke off the supplies. It's going to get expensive. Um, hydroxy, ironically, might be easier to finagle now because people forgot about that. <laughs> that was the first one they trashed. Um, and again, there's many, many other drugs. Um, I don't know. I mean, this, this is utterly insane, now the good news is this the the regeneron I mean Eli Lilly is gone. That didn't work, but the regeneron the monoclonal antibodies are holding up. Okay? They are holding up. I'm I'm seeing good things from that. So again, I would say you know, if you want to prophylax, do it. Speak with someone comp- who's competent. Um I would say you know, if you're around people and you're scared you're exposed, every time you come back, get used to the gargling, the mouthwash, and the 1% betadine mixture. So you take, um, it comes in the pharmacy, 10%, it's over-the-counter, 10% betadine, that's too strong. What you want to do is take nine parts saline or distilled water, one part um, betadine-iodine mix, mix it together put it in like a spray bottle or you could squirt up your nose and that has very cuz again the issue all the doctors that I trust it's the viral load that's killing people now so you want to reduce that as early as you can as you can do it perhaps even in the incubation period that you might not even know you have it but had if you're doing this you'll be better off for it and then again you know multi treatments and and again like i'd say go for the monoclonals some people get knocked out by them but i'm not hearing like you know issues like we had with the vaccines of people getting serious debilitating problems from it um might knock you out but it it is holding up so far um and make sure you you know where to go for that uh sadly i think with this new viral load i don't even know how much time we have for lawsuits but that was certainly certainly very important And what you're seeing now is a self-fulfilling status of creating in Afghanistan. My colleagues want to talk about Afghanistan. This is the ultimate Afghanistan. Let's go back to, let's use this analogy, this metaphor. So you had 9-11. It was an immigration problem. You can't nation build your way out of it. Okay, the key was don't let the garbage in. You want to do strike and maneuver, you see a training camp, Rise up, blow it up. But instead, we stayed there. And then we said, we need to do regime change, and we need to make the Afghanis great people, and that will stop the germination of terrorism. Well, it failed spectacularly, but then what happens is the more you do it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because the more then, then you rely on it, and then... It's harder to pull out, and that's what. And again, this doesn't excuse. Again, there was a right way of doing this, and I was all for that, and we should have done that. And frankly, my colleagues should have helped Trump, you know, back him up when the generals were opposing him. That was the time to do it under Trump. But you know, yeah, I mean, then it gets messy because then you'll see an immediate slaughter and whatever, and that's kind of where we are now. We should have always done early treatment, the original virus was a nothing if you treated it. Now it's getting harder and harder because we went and did the Afghanistan and now, it, and now there's no end game. And I'm starting to think that's part of it. The more the vaccine leaks, the more it creates greater viral load, the more it gives the virus a healthy workout and allows it to strengthen, the more they then say you have to get a third shot and it's going to go on and on, and I am terrified. I am terrified of what this is going to cause. My only hope and prayer, among many, to God, is that, as because it was so bad in the South and it spread so much, that hopefully enough people have gotten natural immunity, both vaccinated and unvaccinated, are all they're get, got natural immunity, so. Even if they continue with this garbage, it won't create the viral enhancement because enough people have natural immunity. And God help us if that starts falling too. I mean, so far it's holding up, but who knows? It, naturally it works, but, but I mean, we've never done something this crazy. Again, don't take my word for it. Okay? The, the West Virginia governor already came out and said 25% of the deaths are vaccinated people. And I guarantee you, that's already old news. It's rapidly, rapidly declining every day. Um, Where is this? Trying to see where this is. Israel just came out with another preprint published at MedRxiv, waning immunity of BNT162b2 vaccine, a nationwide study from Israel, very large study, Hebrew University, Israel Institute of Technology, Aviv. a bunch of uh, places were involved. And they looked at tons of people and they found that the rate of both documented SARS-CoV-2 infections and severe COVID exhibit a statistically significant increase as time from second vaccine dose elapsed elderly individuals who received their second dose in March. Okay? Think about that. I want you guys to think about that. March were 1.6 times more protected Against infection and 1.7 times more protected against severe COVID compared to those who received their second dose just two months earlier in January 2021. Similar results were found for different age groups. So, anyone who sat, so first of all, right away, they're admitting it went from 0% to 25%. And I'm hearing from a lot of people that, you know, roughly a third of what they're seeing in the hospital um cuz a lot of them have dashboards now where they they put it up to shame people but you know the funny thing is it's evening out roughly a third of them are vaccinated in the in the hospitals and again if anything the numbers are probably greater because the policy of CDC is not to test anyone who's vaccinated unless they come in and say they have covid or think they have covid but you come in for um or a you know a, some sort of like you know, bone surgery, cancer surgery, whatever. Um, some procedure. If you say you're not vaccinated, they test you automatically. So remember, if you're in an area like Texas now where it's spreading a lot, and you know you come in a hospital, very likely you'll wind up getting it there. You're not there because of that, or likewise, you might have just gotten over it. A lot of people got it because it's so prolific, and the the dead viral tissue is still picked up the dead viral uh, uh, RNA is still picked up by the PCR testing. Whereas the entire vaccinated cohort is much more limited just to literally, if you're coming in with CLI, you know, COVID-like illness, then they'll test you. But you come in for anything else, they won't. So even their own narrative, the lie is, is you know, coming off. We, we noted that CDC's own study showed so, um not a hundred percent but seventy six percent of hospitalized people were unvaccinated as of June remember the importance of this Israeli study those two months matter what is it March so March that's roughly again that six month marker okay so remember that in Israel almost all seniors were already vaccinated by that date in January in, for in America. It was really just the specialized people, frontline workers. You know, most seniors got it, I would say, in February and March. And then, you know, it's still continuing even beyond that. So, you know, one observation people have noted, which I think is true, that all the young people d- dropping dead are unvaccinated. And again, that is because they're being blasted with this viral load that was only created by the Dan Pfizer shot. And they are the ones who are responsible for it. But what the Israeli study shows is it's not so much a age thing, but a timing thing. Remember, it was literally timed. If you were below 65, you couldn't get the vaccine in America in many states until, you know, whenever it was, um, March or whatever, depending on the state. So that is rapidly changing. So anyone who gives you a number is being insanely dishonest because we already are 100% certain that this works like clockwork. Moderna is still unclear, the rate of acceleration, other than it's a a larger dose. So obviously, you're going to get into that leaky AD, quasi-AD status much later. But likewise, I mean, there's no reason to believe they're all not going to eventually have that problem. So again, that's a very important point, and you know, even if you're pro-vaccine, the notion that someone in January, February, March, that was 30 years old, 40 years old, and said, look, you know, the data show this is like being struck by lightning to die from this at my age, and they didn't get the vaccine, that is not their fault. And history will show that to be correct. And again, at this point, the best thing to do is um, to prophylax, to do all this stuff. Some are asking me, Daniel, as risky as the vaccine is, do I need to get it now that it's creating an immune escape around it? Like, it, you know, I sh- we should never have to take such a risk, but now is it the lesser of the two evils? And, you know, I don't know. Um, But I will say this. If they keep doing boosters, I mean this thing is going to become impervious to treatment to anything this thing is insane so I don't know and you got to work that out with people I don't have an answer to that I will just note a word of caution the problem is there's almost no state that it's not starting to circulate so the problem is that even if you were to adopt that philosophy you're kind of screwed now because everyone agrees that for the first 2 weeks after that first shot not only didn't it kick in but it actually suppresses your immune system and it's funny Israel is actually seeing that with their third shot which is not surprising that that first week or two you actually slide backwards forget about all the risks of side effects i'm just saying in terms of efficacy you're actually it's it's worse you better pray you don't get hit by covid in that window you know so if it's a time where it's kind of dead so it's a, you know you figure all right you know then, then you should be fine. But th- this, is, this is the problem. I've never seen something this scary that they've created a monster and at the same time have systematically engaged in genocide and blocked all treatments. Which is why, you know, now that, I mean, as long as the monoclonals are still available, and again, I don't know if you have to Google this. HHS, I think, has a link that you could type in uh, your zip code, I don't know if in all the states you could even get it at like an outpatient clinic some of them it's limited who you are some of them you have to go to the ER I mean I think, I think most of them you can um, it, it, you know Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida literally is saving lives by doing this again, people never heard of it you'd be shocked monoclonal antibodies, what is that? Again, again, ivermectin is terrible. Hydroxychloroquine is terrible. Any off-label thing, no matter how safe and effective, terrible. Um, Pierre Corey is terrible. Daniel Horowitz is terrible. Everyone is terrible except for Fauci. I get that. But the two questions you need to ask is this. If you really want to save lives, so Regeneron. Everyone knows the President of the United States got it. Everyone knows... That it's, you know, it costs a ton of money. Big Pharma, ton of money. Why would you buy in bulk? I don't, I, I should research this, but they spent billions of dollars funding it. So the cost was sunk from day one. Why wouldn't you blast it everywhere? I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think very deep and long and hard. And I want, Those words to permeate your brain and your heart. On their own worldview of COVID and what to do and what not to do. Not mine, theirs. Why would you do that? Number two, why, why would you elevate? You could be the most pro-COVID vaccine in the history of the world. Okay, but which one? Why would you elevate the one that? has the leakiest data by their own data. This is not our stuff. This is the Mayo Clinic. This is CDC. This is Israel. No one disagrees. No one will deny the fact that Moderna is holding up. Again, I'm not talking about side effects. I think they're all kind of equally as problematic. But in terms of efficacy, Moderna is holding up much better. Yet Pfizer is the one being placed on kids, given a third approval And uh, for experimental use, and then, you know, for, for the second shot for adults, the quasi full approval with the shenanigans they played, but the impression is full approval. Answer that question. And then again, you might not like ivermectin, you might not like hydroxy, but why is it that they have put a blockade on any treatment? Any any treatment. Let, let let me say this, okay. So let's say ivermectin, Pierre Corey, Peter McCullough, Simone Gold, hydroxy are evil. It's going to kill you. I mean, it's the worst thing known to humanity, right? Okay, fine, done. But there are so many other drugs out there. We had you know Richard Urso, Doctor Urso, gave us like he name dropped like twenty things. Why is there no desire? to even embark on research and look at any of this, okay? Number four, forget about antivirals and stuff like that. Why are you not encouraging doctors to just at least keep in touch with their patients, at least through the phone, and prescribe basic things aside from ivermectin? For example, if there's signs that they can get bacterial pneumonia, why not prescribe azithromycin? There are pharmacies refusing to fill it if they know it's for COVID. Why? Next question. No one denies that corticosteroids work, that to some level at the right time, the right amount, and the right one. Okay? And indeed, that is the treatment in the hospital. They give you steroids, albeit dexamethasone, at the wrong dose, which is the wrong drug, and often they do it at the wrong time, and it's causing a lot of problems. But nonetheless, that is their treatment. Why is it that doctors are not being encouraged, but are down are being discouraged from prescribing corticosteroids? You know, uh, I I spoke with Peter McCullough today, and he you know he's a big fan of the monoclonals, tells all of his patients to go get it. But he says very clearly, and you know, I can't explain exactly why, but I think it's obvious. Again, this is not COVID. There's no such thing as COVID. It's a, it's a, you know, meaningless term. It's inflammation, and thrombosis, at least potentially. That's what you want to ward off, and treat if they have it. So he's like, I love the monoclonals, but you still need prednisone. He he recommends he prescribes prednisone with it for every patient. And some sort of – certainly they should be on, on aspirin for, like, the blood. And then if there's if they're someone that's a higher elevated risk, I, I don't – you know, I, I forget which one it is, but there's antithrombotic drugs out there. Um, one's with an L, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could look up some of the protocols. Um, you could look up Peter McCullough's protocol, and he prescribes that as well. Again, this is a no-brainer. It's not anything new. This is done all the time. It's not even novel. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? Doctors prescribe prednisone every freaking day for everything. Why wouldn't you take the thing that you said is going to kill everyone, and now, frankly, created a self-fulfilling prophecy that it is. Why wouldn't you prescribe steroids outpatient? Why wait until they're sick as dogs in the hospital and have a much less chance of... survival? Why? Why? And then remdesivir. Why would you create such a high barrier for stuff that has been proven time and again? Yet when it comes to the thing that is a fortune and every major study shows it doesn't work and causes harm, the WHO, it's on their website, we recommend against the use of remdesivir for COVID-19. Okay, that is from the WHO. They recommend against its use. That is the only stand and the standard of care for three thousand a pop, and to the gates of hell, they will pump it and pump it and pump it and pump it. Why? I will tell you. The preponderance of evidence. From the confluence of those questions synergizing together should paint a picture in your brain that is as revealing as it is dark. And on that sour note, folks, I hope you learned a lot today. I hope you're empowered. I can only do what I can do. I'm as emotionally drained as everyone else is. But... We pray to God, God will give us a salvation like the blink of an eye. Give us some avenue. Please, God, let's help us save people. I don't care about every other political issue I've ever cared about in my career. Nothing else matters until this is dealt with. So let's stay informed, let's stay empowered, and let's kick butt. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.